This is verses 43 through 48. Hear the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is full of wisdom and goodness. Um, Thank you that it's full of love, that love would wash over us this morning as we hear this word. We pray for Carte and his speaking. I pray that you would fill him with your wisdom and your spirit, that the words that come out of him today would be words of truth and goodness and beauty over us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Sherry. Good morning, New City Church. I'm your twofer pastor for this morning. It's the sec- one, one of the two times I get to preach uh, in the year, and uh, I, it's a delight to do it, and it's a privilege uh, to open God's Word with you, and I'm just um, so thankful to be here. I am a pastor in the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, I also serve Mission to the World, uh, who is uh, sponsoring Crates for Ukraine uh, through churches like this, uh, and I serve Mission to the World as a senior director of field operations uh, where we oversee 600 plus missionaries serving in over 80 countries in the world. We're nearing the end of our message series uh, that was started some time ago called Kingdom Culture where we've been unpacking the words of Jesus in the book of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. And we started with the Beatitudes, those blessed are statements that Jesus makes, in which he describes how his kingdom turns cultural expectations on their heads, along with kingdom promises. Blessed are the poor in spirit, with the promise theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, with the promise they'll be comforted, and so on. And then Jesus concludes with a startling statement in in verse 20. He says this, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Shocking. That your, your rightness with God must exceed the most religious, those deemed to be closest to God, those thought to be most righteous in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's shocking because if these guys can't get in, who can? Following that statement comes a section of Jesus' teaching that are sometimes called the antitheses. These are direct contrasts. Jesus begins each with, you have heard it said, followed by the antithesis, but I say to you. 
And in each, Jesus clarifies how the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees missed the mark of God's righteousness entirely. Through these antitheses, Jesus moves his disciples from uh, outward behavior to inward reality, from cultural and religious norms to the culture of the kingdom, from rule following to despairing of our own ability to become righteous through our own work. And the antithesis that we're considering this morning is the last of six. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus sums up this section in our last verse. Therefore, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. How do we attain a righteousness that exceeds that of the most religious of the scribes and the Pharisees? Simple, be perfect. (laughs) So here's where we're going. Here's the big idea from this morning to summarize. God's boundless grace frees our hearts to love boundlessly. And I have three main points from the text. First, fallen hearts build boundaries. Second, God gives grace boundlessly. And third, hearts transformed by God's grace image his boundless grace. So let's get started. First, fallen hearts build boundaries. Where do I get that? Well, if we go back to the text, we see a popular misconception of the law, which says, love your neighbor, but hate your enemies. And of course, love your neighbor is found In Scripture, in Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But nowhere in Scripture is hatred of our enemies commanded. In fact, quite the opposite. In Leviticus 26, for example, there's an instruction for Israel to leave the gleanings of the field and the vineyard for the poor and the sojourner. At the end of chapter 19, a command is written, the stranger who sojourns with you shall be to you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Exodus 23 says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down with his burden, don't leave him with it. Rescue him. Proverbs 25 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. So how in the world do we end up in this place where we have this unbiblical misunderstanding, hate your enemies. And the simple answer is boundaries. Boundaries that our fallen human hearts continue to construct. See, the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, was given by God to the community of his people. We look back to Leviticus. It commands, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
But if you fast forward from there to about 70 years before the birth of Jesus, to the community, the Jewish community that was living in Qumran, which is now the West Bank area, and through the writings of that community, we find this command had morphed into a division between God's people and everyone else. A chasm between insiders and outsiders. The community explicitly um, commanded love for those within the community, those elect by God, while commanding hatred of the outsider. Why? Because they'd become convinced that they alone were the faithful remnant of God. To them, we're loving the sons of our own people. They're our neighbors. But everyone else, well, they're not. So they don't deserve love. In fact, what they deserve is our scorn, our hatred. So it's no surprise when Jesus asks the lawyer in Luke 10 to summarize the law, it's no wonder he quotes this verse. And he summarizes it, love God, love your neighbor. That's a summary of the law. So then he asks, who's my neighbor? Good question, because the religious of the day had, had said, we're in, and, and you, you're out. We love, we love us, but we don't owe you love. So the lawyer asking who's in and who's out is not a surprise. It demonstrates an abject failure in understanding what God commanded. And here Jesus corrects that lawyer through the parable of the Good Samaritan that epitomizes love for the outsider. Theologian Miroslav Volf writes this, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and myself from the community of sinners. We could easily change that to say love flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and myself from the community of sinners. See, my broken tendency is to put myself in the camp of the blessed and then build a fence around the camp just like the scribes and the Pharisees, just like the Jewish Qumran community, just like every heart that has fallen since that first sin by our first parents, which asks, who's inside? Who's my neighbor? We see it way back in the question Cain asked God regarding his brother Abel. Am, am I my brother's keeper? Jesus observes every insider loves other insiders in their community. Even, even hated tax collectors do that. Why would you be commended for that? For loving those inside your circle. It's, it's in loving those outside our boundaries that's countercultural. That's what the culture of the kingdom looks like. That's what's remarkable. We don't have to stretch our imaginations too far to see where, where we build boundaries, do we? We build them in political camps, certainly. If you're, if you're not in my party, you're not in the camp of the blessed. We build them between ethnicities and races. We build boundaries between 
us and people not like us, people who agree with us or people who don't. We build them between generations. Okay, boomer, that's a sign of a, of a boundary. We build them along class lines, social status, denominational lines. A, a pastor friend of mine uh, last week told me a story about showing up at a church as a, as a guest preacher, and he and his wife were sitting in, in one of the pews, and a, a member of the congregation walked up to them and said, why are you sitting here? This is my seat. See, you're not a part of us. You're outside, even in church on a Sunday morning. Why do our hearts do this? It's our fallen attempt, I think, to manage sin, our unrighteousness before a holy God. For example, in Jesus' day, there were over 5,000 rabbinic rules regarding just the observance of the Sabbath, how far I can walk, what I can eat or cook, what I can trade or, or can I trade. And the thought was, if I manage the law by creating boundaries around it, I won't break it. And that sounds like a really virtuous goal because now if I just follow each of these rules, then I'll be confident in my righteousness, that I won't offend, offend God, and then God must accept me, right? So I hear, love your neighbor, and I simply identify who my neighbor is, and then my obligation to God is met through loving those insiders. But those other people, well, I have no obligation to them. So I falsely believe my right standing with God is intact. And the closer and the tighter I draw that circle, the easier it is for me to manage. Or I draw boundaries in my fallen attempt to be God by creating my own rules. Remember Satan's promise in the garden to Eve, if you eat this fruit, you will be like him. The promise still echoes in our hearts today. I create my own rules. Hate your enemy. That's not what God commanded. It's what man had decided was acceptable in managing his own sin. God, in fact, had commanded the opposite. I build my own set of rules. Don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. I attempt to manage my sin and, and create my own righteousness. But we can also draw boundaries because of fear. What will people think? I stand at the side of someone who has caused damage and destruction in my life, has harmed someone in my family. What might I lose if I seek that other person's good? What if I pray for them? As Jesus says here, what if those, what if those prayers are answered? Do, do I want that? It's fear-inducing. Pastor Wang Yi is the founder and pastor of Early Rain Covenant Church in Chengdu, China. He was arrested by the communist government in 2018. 
sentenced to nine years in prison for illegal business operations. In reality, he's in jail because he's a Christian pastor in a place where the government is doing everything it can to suppress the gospel message. Knowing he was going to be arrested and incarcerated, Wang Yi writes a blog post and says this, May the Lord help me so that from the day of my detention, I will pray every day for those in power related to my case, as well as officials in the police force, national security, the prosecutor's office, the court, and other government agencies. See, persecution isn't, somebody cut me off on 85. Here's overt persecution. Wang Yi sitting in prison because of the gospel, and his response is, I will pray every day for those who persecuted me. Jesus says, love without boundaries. Pray for those who persecute you. And he says it to an audience, remember, of non-citizens living under the crushing oppression of the Roman Empire. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the priest and author who was martyred by the Nazis in World War II, wrote this. This is the supreme command. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy and we stand by his side and plead for him to God. Loving the other without boundaries. Praying for her, praying for him. Well, you might argue, but, but, but doesn't God have enemies? Doesn't he hate his enemies? Well, Scripture does say God repays those who hate him. And there's several times where it talks about God's relationship with his enemies. But the, the comparison obviously falls short, doesn't it? We aren't God. God is the God of both salvation and of judgment. And only he reigns over both perfectly. Only God does that in per perfect righteousness. I can't. You can't. We don't have it in us. As John Stott says in his commentary, there is such a thing as perfect hatred, just as there is such a thing as righteous anger. But that is a hatred for God's enemies, not our own enemies. Those who follow Jesus are called to mourn over sin and the rebellion of mankind. We can and should hate sin, but we can never increase our standing before a holy creator God by determining for ourselves which of his creatures, even those sinners, are worthy of love. This is exactly what Jesus goes after. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Managing our sin or seeking to establish our own rules of righteousness is exactly the failure of the scribes and Pharisees. It, it winds up as behavior management, not heart change. And so when we're actually hated, really persecuted, our fallen inclination is to say, they're the other. We owe them nothing. That brings us to the second point, which is the foundation on which Jesus builds his argument, and that is God gives grace boundlessly. Look back at the, his logic in verse 45. Why love the outsider, the other? 
Jesus says, so that you may be sons, daughters of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes a sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. See, Jesus grounds this boundless love on the nature of the Father who makes his son to rise on all, sends his reign on all. No insiders and outsiders to him. His creatures enjoy all of his goodness, his love. And as a doctrine, we call this common grace. It's, it's God's loving kindness poured out to all. He doesn't make it rain on the church and nobody else. He doesn't cause his son to rise in Lawrenceville and not those sinners in, in Midtown or on that political party, but, but not on this one or not on those people. The argument Jesus is making is this. If God gives all to all from the storehouse of his perfect love, how can we claim that only those we select are worthy of our imperfect love? You enjoy his son. You're refreshed by his rain. You breathe his air. You eat the food grown in the ground he created from nothing that's what he freely gives to all. So on, on what grounds would we restrain ourselves from seeking the interests of others who are outside, of praying for them, even if they're actively seeking your harm? Jesus says, that's who God is. And in there is also a reminder that none of us earned it. Remember, you were born as an enemy of God. Paul writes to the Christians at Colossae and says, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but he still caused his sun to shine on you, still poured his rain out on you, even when you were his enemy. You see, God goes first and showing his love to those who are hostile toward him. That's how Paul describes it in Romans 8 when he writes, the sinful mind is hostile toward God. And yet God reciprocates, not with hate, but with loving kindness to his creatures. He loves without boundaries. So God's heart is one of love for his creation and his creatures, which he demonstrates through his loving common grace to them, even his enemies, well, notice then, back at the beginning of this verse, Jesus locates our love for others in the imitation of God, our Father. He says, so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is speaking to a particular audience, his followers, those who have experienced saving grace, in other words, in order to love others like your heavenly father, you first must be part of his family. You first must be spiritually born as his son, his daughter, to have him as your dad. In fact, it's a purpose of common grace to lead us to repenting of our hostility toward God and believing and resting in the work of Jesus alone and freeing us from our attempt to manage 
our righteousness, manage our sin, or to be God's. Apostle Paul says this in Romans 2, where he makes the argument that God's kindness and common grace is intended to lead us to membership in his family through his saving grace in Jesus. Here's what Paul writes. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, God's kindness and making the sunrise and sending rain is intended to point us to his ultimate kindness and love, reconciliation with him through his son, Jesus Christ. And when we've known that grace, that love, the love for which God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes should not perish, but have eternal life. When we've known that love, we're adopted as sons and daughters into his family. And then the call of Jesus to love like your heavenly father loves, without limits, without boundaries, just like him, then that call makes sense. Then there are not insiders to love and outsiders to hate because our father's love extends to all and is intended to bring sons and daughters into the family as they see his kindness and goodness were then called to love like him without boundaries. There's that old saying, right? Like father, like son. Why do we say that? <laughs> because it's true. For better or worse, um, I was adopted at a few months of age and my brave young single mother um, carried me to term and gave me life despite her horrible life situation. When I was in my late 30s, I was privileged to, to actually meet uh, both my birth mother and birth father. And when, when I met my birth dad, I took a photo, which I later showed to my eldest son. And he looked at it, and he saw the amazing facial similarities. Uh, and he said, well, now I know what I'm going to look like in 50 years. <laughs> it's true. I look like a younger version of my dad, and, and my sons are younger versions of me. Poor things. It's in the DNA. It, it works from the inside out. I don't look like my dad because I had plastic surgery or, or because I photoshopped myself. I, I look like my dad because it's inside of me. It's my core. And when your family you begin to look like your heavenly father because you have his DNA. Instead of living out of a rule book and attempting to manage my behavior, I begin to live out of the nature of the family, out of my identity as a son of the king who, who loves without boundaries. Loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you doesn't make us sons and daughters. It reveals your identity as a member of the family. It's the nature of the family. Maybe you're in here and you, you don't know this love of God yet. Many people here who are part of the family who would love to talk with you, answer questions, point you to this loving creator who makes his sun to shine on you, makes his rain to fall on you, who gives you life and breath and everything else. And I say to you, 
Don't presume upon his love. Embrace it. Pursue it. Our Father gives boundlessly. And there are people here who would love to talk to you, answer questions, pray with you. And there's some that will be outside at the end of service. Of course, even as Jesus says these words, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, he knows very soon he'll be hanging on a Roman cross, abandoned, naked, and dying while his persecutors gamble the clothes he had worn, people passing by, jeering at him. Come down, save yourself if you're God. But for Jesus, none of them were in the outer circle. Remember, he pleaded with his father, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And from the tense of the verb used there in that passage, it's very likely that Jesus kept repeating that same prayer again and again for his persecutors. Father, forgive them. In his perfectly righteous life, death, resurrection from the dead, ascension into heaven, we're freely offered forgiveness as God's enemies for all who will turn to him and believe and trust in him and, and become adopted into the kingdom as sons and daughters, given new hearts that reflect the nature and character of God who loves without boundaries. Jesus wasn't made a son through his prayers. He is the perfect son who perfectly shows us the boundless heart of the Father who gives his grace boundlessly. Last point, hearts transformed by God's grace image his boundless love. Jesus concludes all of the six antitheses with that shocking statement in verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect. This is that bookend of verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds the, that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must have greater righteousness than the most religious people of the day. And through the, these antitheses, he draws out what true righteousness looks like as he exposes the hearts of his hearers in light of the culture of the kingdom. Jesus strips away the folly of behavior modification, of rule following, of managing God, and he finishes his teaching. Be perfect as God is perfect. That's, that's the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the, of the most religious. That's what's necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus goes after the heart. Righteousness begins from the inside, with a transformed heart, as a son, as a daughter of the, of the king, with the DNA of the family. He makes this quite clear when he challenges the religious leaders later in, in Matthew, saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, same group, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside may also be clean. So you can clean the outside all day long, following rules, managing God, but that doesn't clean the inside. 
If you want the outside to be clean, first clean the inside. Get a new heart. Then the outside begins to reflect the inside through a heart that's being transformed into the likeness of your heavenly Father. This is God's promise to his people through the prophet Ezekiel. When he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. How will you become clean inside? God says, I'll do it. I'll give you a new heart. I'll clean you. I'll put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And, and then what you do, how you love, will look more and more like me because your heart has been made alive by the Spirit. It's not to say we don't have any part to play. Paul says to the Philippians to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But with a new heart and, new, and empowered by the Spirit, we hear Jesus' words, love your enemies. And, and we should be led to considering who are those people that we've held in that outer circle, those we haven't deemed as being worthy of being inside. By the way, these are not opposites, neighbors and enemies. The word translated neighbors simply signifies somebody who's close in proximity. The, the opposite is not enemy. The opposite would be people who are far away. But our boundaries push people, however close, to the outer circle and calls them enemies, or at least certainly not us. Who are those people in your life? How can you seek their good? What do they need to flourish to be and to do well? Pray for those who persecute you. Listen, sometimes we really are hurt by others. Sometimes people really do actively work at opposing you, maybe in your own family, maybe in your school or where you work. And yet Jesus says, put them on your prayer list. As Bonhoeffer said, go to them and stand by their side and plead for them to God. That's a challenge. I, I know sometimes it's a day-to-day -day struggle to plead for them, for their good. But Jesus says, you know what? That reveals your heart as a son, as a daughter of the Father who gives grace. So be perfect. It starts with a new heart, but it doesn't end there. It's a process of working out our salvation from the new heart that God gives to his sons and daughters. Jesus didn't mean that be, he demands our perfection now because otherwise he couldn't have talked about a hunger and thirst after righteousness as a continual characteristic of his disciples. It also wouldn't make sense for Jesus to teach us to pray, forgive us our debts, or for the apostle John to write, 
if, uh, if anyone sins, and when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. See, perfection comes from a new and transforming heart as we pursue the one who is perfect, knowing him, being filled and guided by his spirit, applying his forgiveness when we fail again and again as we work out this salvation. But the command also comes with the promise of future perfection. Remember what's been said several times during this series, that God provides what he requires. Consider the future scene we see in the throne room of heaven that the Apostle John wrote in Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The promise is this. All of the sons and daughters of this heavenly family have a blood-bought perfection in and through Christ that will be revealed in the future. It's a perfection that begins in a new heart through faith in Christ a perfection that more and more enables us to love boundlessly like our heavenly Father who causes his sun to rise and rain to fall on all. A perfection that strengthens us to love the ones who hate us, gives grace to love and pray for those who persecute us. And it's a perfection he has provided to all who believe in his son, our brother, which causes us to more and more look and live like members of the royal family. Will it cost? Will it cost you? Will it cost you to, to love boundlessly those people, the ones who mistreat you? Will it cost Jesus everything? Cost the Father who gave his dear and only begotten Son. But it is the family nature given by a perfect God to all of his sons and daughters until they reach his promised perfection by his spirit through Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you love boundlessly and you make it possible for us to do that as we pursue you. And though we would fail again and again, you hold out to us forgiveness in Christ. Oh, Father, it's our heart's plea that we would look more and more and more like you and love more and more and more like you, that you would receive praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace 
to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.